Today's guest on the Bitcoin.com news podcast is Michael Kong, the CEO of the Foundum Foundation. Welcome to the show, Michael. Hey, Avi. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation. Appreciate it. So would you start by uh, telling us a little bit about yourself and uh, how did you get to the, your position? Yeah, so I grew up in Sydney, Australia, and kind of how I got started, I guess, in the blockchain space is that around 2015 or 16, when I was studying at the University of Sydney, there were uh, a bunch of individuals that were going around and kind of like evangelizing Ethereum, you know, according to like the Ethereum evangelists. And um, I was studying uh, finance and IT back then. And one of these like evangelists, like, you know, came to me and a group of friends once and was like, you know, hey, have you heard of this thing called uh, Ethereum? So uh, you heard of Bitcoin, right? I'm like, yeah. It's like, mm. but like Ethereum, you see, you can like, Do what Bitcoin does except smart contracts and the pos- the possibilities of smart contract contracts are kind of endless and sort of the ideas that we see now like with entities and DeFi and, and other things that really have become quite popular over the you know the past few years um, these sorts of individuals were talking about it and really thinking like very much into the future and so I got kind of like um convinced by one of these like evangelists to start um, looking into ethereum and smart contracts so I would play around with it and You know just like see what I could do with it and and how it all worked that sort of thing and unfortunately um in 2016 as part of like a software research project for my degree um, there um, was a professor called Bernard Schultz who's now our chief research officer and doing a lot of amazing stuff with us he wanted to explore um, building smart contract security tools for um, ethereum smart contracts so we spent like a uh, more than a year and Uh, him and I and a, and a team of um, other people um, at university building these sorts of like smart contract detection tools that were kind of like I guess like a little bit like primitive at the time but have you know obviously evolved to be a lot more sophisticated so I had it like I had the opportunity to learn through university um, or, or gain like a very good technical understanding of like how smart contracts work and then afterwards in 2017 um, I was working for a blockchain software development firm and called uh, blockade and they've worked on a number of like different like high profile projects one of them probably the most famous being haven which later it um, has now become synthetic network token and then towards the end of 2017 um, I saw up a fund with a few people from traditional finance and this is how I kind of got into phantom because um, someone on the team that I, I co-founded the fund with um, knew this uh, individual in Korea and this team in Korea that supposedly was building the Like a new blockchain called Phantom, and they were making all these promises about you know the performance, et cetera. And the individual uh, you know apparently had a good background in Korea and you you know he popped up in Korean media, et cetera. And so we kind of we kind of got very excited about that. And so um my fund that I was working at the time called token token capital management, we were brought on board to essentially help them with the fundraise and you know to do the corporate structuring and and in, and and we invested a lot of our own money, investors money into it as well. You know, and, and that um, ICO raise um, turned out to be very successful. So we did the ICO raise in it finished in June 2018. It raised a bit over 40 million dollars. Um, but then it turns out that the claims that um, uh, these individuals were making about the performance and technology wasn't quite so true, right? And this is when Andre came in because Andre Cronya, you know was known back then to, um, to be a good code reviewer. Uh, crypto briefing this is how he kind of like got started in space my understanding and he kind of like found phantom and engaged with phantom and then when he realized that you know 
the the technology that you know Phantom claimed to be professing didn't really exist, he started to get a lot more involved and said, "Well, I have ideas about you know how to achieve you know the technology that you're looking to achieve." And so him and I were kind of closely in building uh, kind of like a new team of developers and engineers um, to kind of get to where we are now. So I'll just stop there. That's very interesting. And how would you define the what uh, makes Phantom uh, different right now from other EVMs or uh, layer one blockchains? So I think it's the fact that we've been able to process transactions asynchronously in what is known as a permissionless environment. Now, that's like quite a few words that I use there, but just to kind of break it down, um, asynchronous means that the network can um, confirm multiple transactions simultaneously or multiple blocks of transactions simultaneously so in a network such as ethereum you know you're confirming one block at a time um but in a network like phantom you might be confirming you know two or three or four blocks at the time or sets of transactions and that is um intuitively um you know uh, quite a bit more efficient um because obviously if you're doing you know you're, you're processing three blocks simultaneously you're achieving like three times the same amount of output as as ethereum if you you know, look at the uh, block confirmation times, you assume that they're the same. But we're also able to confirm those transactions much faster than like a 15-second block confirmation time. Um, you know, we're able to do it, you know, in around like uh, one to two seconds or so. Um, so it's that ability to process transactions asynchronously that really allows Phantom to kind of like maintain like low cost and, and high throughput. The other benefit is that it's done in a permissionless manner. So some other like networks, may have like points of permission, which kind of like help speed up the network. But in that sort of situation, you're kind of trading um, um, uh, security for permissionless, right? For us, um, we found a way with our algorithms to be able to process transactions simultaneously, but do it without necessarily knowing like, you know, who are behind the nodes and allowing nodes to dynamically join and, and leave the network um, over time, right? And so, I think that's what makes our technology unique. Um, but what also makes our technology unique is like um, the new technology or the new like um, much better upgraded version of um, the Opera chain, as we call it, that's coming down very soon down the line within a few months. Can you tell us more about that, the uh, Opera chain? Yeah, sure. So uh, just to be clear, like Phantom is like an EVM compatible chain. So that means that the way that you would write um, Kabal and deploy smart contracts on Ethereum uh, pretty much works the same way as on Phantom. Um, the difference, the main difference being is like the consensus mechanism. That being said, we've just about to release the testnet um, today, Tuesday on the 24th, actually, that demonstrates some of the new technology that we've got coming out. And basically that dramatically increases the performance of the Phantom network. So just to give you some indication of, of what that is, you know, with the new um, uh, technology will coming out. We've discovered that we have the ability to process um, over 2,000 transactions per second of a similar type of data that's being processed on the Phantom network, right? And so, what I mean by these transactions is that they're not like simple just account to account transfers. The vast majority of them, over 90%, are like smart contract based transactions. And that's actually one of the big bottlenecks of um, a smart contract based chain is that, you know, a lot of people talk about or consensus and you know scaling consensus and sharding and that sort of thing and all those ideas are definitely very important but you know being able to process a transaction is is a lot is a lot more than just like consensus right it's like an entire process of what we call like 
going through middleware and executing with what we call a virtual machine, which is basically like you know a software layer that actually makes the smart contract operate as is, as is intended. And so what we've done is that we've built our own new uh, virtual machine that we call the Phantom Virtual Machine. And it's basically a lot more efficient than Ethereum Virtual Machine. However, it still means that Ethereum-based smart contracts are entirely compatible with this new virtual machine, which is great because it means that developers don't need to redeploy their contracts. They don't need to do anything new. They will automatically get the benefit of this new technology when we roll out to the mainnet. The other big benefit is that we dramatically changed the way that storage is done. And by doing so, we've been able to significantly reduce how much storage is required. And you know, bloat on the blockchain is a very um, significant problem. It adds a lot of costs. It slows down your network. Um, it just makes things more complicated. It makes it harder to run nodes because you've got more data to sync. Well, with some of the new technology work coming out, um, we can reduce storage um, requirements by you know up to 90% or even in some cases higher than that. And so that means that you now require a fraction of storage if you want to run like a full node that can talk to the network, what we call like an archival or RPC node that has a whole history of the chain. Or even when you're running like a validator node, or uh, uh, which doesn't require the whole history, it's now a fraction of the current disk space. So just to give you some numbers, so for an archive node for Phantom, it requires almost like 12 terabytes of data. With the changes that we've got coming, it will be about like one terabyte or so. Um, to run a validator node in the most optimal way, it requires about you know two to three terabytes of data. But in in um, with the new technology, it's about 300 gigabytes of data. And so that just makes it a lot easier for people to run nodes. It's a lot cheaper. And it just makes the network a lot more decentralized as well. So that's some of the new technology that we've got coming very, very shortly that should be rolled out to the mainnet within months. So this is not years away. This is like months away. And we're very excited about it because it will solve a lot of scalability problems, I think, that we've been facing in the space. Very interesting. So you seem to be very focused on efficiency. So I have two questions um, regarding that. Let's start with the first one. When do you think that we will see uh, you know, Web3 or blockchain technologies that are on par with you know, the current uh, systems that we have or like, when can we see Web three replaces the internet, right? If that's even uh, you know feasible in your eyes. So I, I think we have to be realistic about the performance of blockchains. You're never going to have a blockchain um, system or a distributed system be as efficient as like a single computer, right? And that's because you know if you think about it intuitively, if I want to confirm a transaction on a single computer. I send it to a single computer, it confirms the transaction, I get a response from it, and it says, you know, your transaction has been confirmed. And that's kind of like how web2-based applications work, right? You know, you go to Facebook, you make a post, you're basically submitting a transaction, but you submit a transaction to Facebook servers, they process it, they give you a response saying, your transaction is posted, right? And then other people can see it. In a web3 network, the way it works is that it's a similar transaction-based model, except instead of your transaction just being sent to like one server or one central location and being confirmed, it goes through this whole process of like consensus where basically the computers talk to one another, they all come to agreement that you know, your transaction is valid, they all duplicate it on their computers, and then they tell you and other people that you know, your transaction is now on the network. And so what that intuitively means is that you know, if I have to confirm the transaction on five computers or 10 computers or 100 computers, it's always going to be slower than doing it on a single computer. So the real challenge is, how do you like minimize the trade-offs 
between like decentralization and performance, right, and security. And I think there's various different techniques of doing it. Like I, for example, just talked about like how you do it at a you know the smart contract layer where you know the virtual machine and storage and that sort of thing and and, and data. Um, but also, I think longer term, when we start thinking about ideas like what we call like sharding, so being able to like you know not not require every computer to have a, a, an exact copy of you know uh, the whole blockchain, but being able to like come to consensus about like what that um, you know what 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 the what the record of transactions are via cons- uh, you know t- by talking to one another, I think that will go a long way in scaling blockchain networks um, because. That means that um, it's just a lot more efficient in terms of like data processing while still being able to maintain consensus, if I can put it that way. Um, but that being said, you'll never get the performance of a single computer, right? But that's kind of okay because you know there are advantages and disadvantages with you know Web two versus Web three. Like not everything that is Web two necessarily needs to be on Web three, but there are a lot of important things that um, do benefit from a Web three distributed environment. You know, for example, like you know, in particular, like decentralized finance based applications, you know, there's a huge market there that benefits from web free technologies and has certain advantages that don't really exist in the web two environment. Um, but you'll never get the same performance. Yeah. Can you give us some examples of uh, web three applications that, uh, you know, make sense in your eyes to, to work, you know, for, for DeFi and not for, let's say, uh, social media? Yeah, sure. So, for example, um, when it comes to decentralized finance, um, uh, uh, swapping assets, right? So, you know, I think a lot of people in your audience know about, you know, Uniswap and other like um, uh, swapping like um, uh, software or smart contracts like Curve, where you go in there and, you know, you want to swap like, say, one stablecoin for another, right? Or you want to swap, say, Ethereum for, you know, a stablecoin or swap a stablecoin for Ethereum, right? And the real benefit from using like a, a decentralized exchange or a DEX for short, is that, you know, when you engage in traditional finance with, um, uh, uh, in order to do a trade, you know, you, you have to use like a centralized system, right? Or you have to use a broker. And that incurs costs, you know, there can be errors on the, on the broker side where they don't execute the trade exactly the way you wanted. There's also counterparty risk where in some cases, the broker, you know, can just steal your money and, 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 and cause you problems. And so there are all these points of centralization that kind of increase costs and you know reduce efficiency and add additional risks. In say like a smart contract based environment, if you code the smart contract correctly, right, then there's added transparency because then you can see exactly how the smart contract operates, right? And you can see, or someone independent of the broker can of the smart contract of the guy who wrote the smart contract can say, okay, it really does operate as the person who wrote the smart contract says it does, right? And then so when you interact with the application, you have that sort of like knowledge that you really are going to be able to perform this swap, right? And there's reduced counterparty risk because of this transparency. And also the fact that when you perform the swap, you're doing from like your wallet with somebody else's wallet, right? And so you don't have to necessarily hand your tokens over to someone else, particularly if it's a large trade and trust that the broker is going to execute it correctly and also isn't going to steal your money, right? And it also increases efficiency because you know if you're dealing with like you know multiple brokers you know that's that's not that's not a very efficient system and so you know if you can just deal with a smart contract which works autonomously and can work 24 7 that's also a gain in efficiency and so when i think about like you know what makes sense in a web free environment and what doesn't make sense i always think about it in terms of like 
efficiency and gains, right? Like the reason why software fundamentally is so valuable is because of the massive increases in productivity that it just develops, it, it, it just like um, it makes available to people, right? You know, the ability for us to, for example, like communicate, um, you know, in, in real time over vast distances is great because that's obviously a lot more efficient than physical mail, right? You know, the ability for us to, you know, be able to perform research and stuff online, you know, is much more efficient than honestly going to a library and trying to find a book. And so when I think about it, when I think about what benefits from web-free technology, I always think about like, you know, what is the technology that exists and what sort of problems can it solve that makes things, you know, more secure or more efficient, you know, increases productivity. That's how I really like frame how, how I think about software in general. I had another question about uh, efficiency. We've seen that, you know, in various aspects of, of the blockchain, you know, industry, gains in efficiency have led to uh, centralization, right? For example, in mining. So where do you see that going? Are, are we ever going to see people running, you know, their own, uh, let's say, validators or their own miners as individuals, like running the, you know, the whole network? Or, or are we already far beyond that and we're, we're not going back? Yeah, I think you raise a really good point because um, there are like a lot of points of centralization that currently exist with like web-free technologies and even like taking like an OG currency like Bitcoin, right? You know, a lot of people like to think, oh, you know, Bitcoin is, you know, the perfect example of like decentralized P2P money and store value, et cetera. But in reality, you know, who confirms or secures the Bitcoin network? There are miners, right? And what are miners? Miners are people who run businesses to mine Bitcoin, to, to generate Bitcoin. And so, you know, miners have, you know, a revenue source, which is mining Bitcoin. And they also have, um, you know, like cost associated with mining Bitcoin, right? And so because of like the economics of like Bitcoin mining, right? There's a tremendous um, push towards economies of scale because obviously like the bigger mining operation you make, the more efficiency efficiencies you gain because, you know, the better cost hardware you can get, the, the, the cheaper, like, you know, the rental space it is, the better deal you can get on electricity, et cetera. And so you can reduce your fixed costs per Bitcoin mine. And what, what does that mean? Well, at least in centralization, because the bigger the mine, the better your cost, right? And so in many respects, like Bitcoin is quite centralized in that there are only like a number of like mining pools or providers out there that that number, you know, I think in a single, single digits or 10 to 20 that already uh, make up the majority of the network. And so if they were theoretically were to, were to delude, um, then, you know, they could perform a 51% attack on the network. That being said, the economic incentives as to why those parties might not want to collude, um, which is uh, which is interesting. But I think for like, you know, chains in general, if you can reduce the benefits of, of economies of scale, in other words, if you can make running a node as cheap as possible, that encourages, of course, people to run more nodes in the network and to um and, and to benefit from doing so, right? So, like, what we're doing at Phantom is why it's so important to reduce, um, you know, the, the the storage requirements and to increase the efficiency of the hardware is that it makes the people to e it makes it a lot easier for people to run nodes and not just nodes that validate transactions in the network, but nodes that send requests to the network because that's also another point of centralization. You know, if everyone re um uh, relies on one um, node to send requests to the network and that one node, you know, can do stuff to those requests um, uh, themselves. And so I think the the more that you lower the cost, the more decentralization you can get. That being said, decentralization is not like 
this like like perfect goal that solves everything, right? Like a lot of people would like to talk about decentralization is great, but why is it great, right? I think it's good to some extent because it helps secure the network. And so, you know, securing the network isn't just about quote unquote decentralization. It's about, you know, having the right economic incentives so people do act in a, you know, good and proper manner as, you know, the community or the users of blockchain would expect. So it's also the economics that really matter as well, not just like the level of, you know, quote unquote decentralization. And how do you view the current state of the crypto market in general? Um, like the, the place we're in, I'm not asking about prices, just asking about, uh, you know, wh where do you see this market going right now? Yeah, sure. So, you know, obviously, you know, I can't give any financial advice. I have no license or qualifications to do so. But in my like naive opinion, I think where we are at the market cycle is that traditionally, you know, there's been like, a two-year bull, two-year bear cycle, um, kind of like linked to the Bitcoin halving that approaches, um, you know, you, you, you could say this is a self-fulfilling prophecy because a lot of people say, oh, you know, Bitcoin halving is approaching, that it was a bullish case, and therefore, you know, people buy cryptocurrencies, in particular Bitcoin, and it kind of leads to the gains. But whether it's a self-fulfilling prophecy or not, that seems to be kind of like the trend in the past, right? Um, there are like a few other indications I'm looking at in terms of like where we are in the market cycle, not just this like, you know, two-year bull, two-year bear pattern that I talked about. And, you know, it seems like we're kind of towards the end of the two-year bear pattern, right? Um, but I also think about, um, um, you know, the macroeconomic conditions that are out there. You know, interest rates are still quite high. But, you know, they're above like 5%, I think, you know, 5.25 or 5.5% or so. Um, I think, you know, there will be more appetite for risk on assets when interest rates start to be lower and get lowered. And I think they will start to get lowered maybe sometime next year, um, I suspect, because the um, the government cannot keep interest rates as high as they are right now because they won't be able to service the debt because higher interest rates means that the cost of government borrowing goes up. And when you do simple calculations like, okay, let's see how much debt is outstanding, say, for the U.S. government. Oh, it's about $34 trillion. Okay, well, what are bond yields right now you know, for 10 years or 30 years, um, longer-term bond yields. Oh, you know, they're like approaching 5%. Well, you multiply, you know, 33 trillion by 5% um, over time, and that's a lot of money. That's trillions of dollars in interest that um, the government will have to pay, and they simply can't afford to pay that. So they will eventually have to lower interest rates so they can keep borrowing more money at lower costs. And when they start lowering interest rates, then people will find, you know, these higher yields in bonds and money markets less attractive. and what are usually deemed like riskier assets more attractive and there and and therefore move their money into other assets for example like uh, uh, uh blockchain based assets but then again like this is all just kind of like my uh, my hypothesis and kind of like my thinking at the moment in general right yeah but do you think that uh an increase in prices right once the you know the the bull market will will arrive at, at some point right will that lead us to new technological innovation are 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 the current um you know the current issues with with uh let's say web3 adoption right are are there just a matter of uh, of uh, prices being right or it's the technology that is still lacking 
Oh, I, I think there's been a tremendous amount of like technology development, you know, regardless of the market conditions, right? I mean, you know, there are a lot of things that I can kind of like point to, you know, uh, say within Phantom or outside of Phantom, you know, development of like, you know, ZK technologies, development of new kind of like uh, decentralized finance based products and new games and that sort of thing. That being said, I think in a bull market, like the technology development can also accelerate as well because there's just like simply more money in the space. Um, but also, you know, you tend to see like a lot more, um, you know, more speculative technologies that maybe, you know, will not really work in the end as well, um, come to fruition and get funded, you know, in the bull market. Again, simply because there's a bit more money around. Um, however, you know, with technology and especially this technology, which is so new, you know, there's a lot of experimentation being done. There's a lot of ideas being thrown around. You know, some ideas, you know, in the space have previously failed. You know, some ideas have kind of caught on and seemed successful. And I think that's just a natural progress with technology development. You know, not everything that was built in the internet, you know, has, has made it to where it is today, right? Um, and not everything that has been experimented on with regards to blockchain technology, um, you know, will, will exist today. Um, you know, in the past, people talked about, you know, scaling the Ethereum network with like ideas such as like Radon and Plasma. And I don't know if people like remember this, but like six years ago, you know, there was talk about, you know, having a lightning network for Ethereum. And the idea was called like the Radon network. And that really never came to fruition for like a number of like, I guess, like like technical reasons. Uh, but there are other ideas that are now being explored now. And so, you know, I think regardless of where we are in the market cycle, we will always keep having more and more technology uh, progress over time. That's a very interesting take. And can you give us, uh, you know, some of the examples of the, you know, most popular apps or, or apps that are, um, you know, specifically uh, um, attractive to you on, on Phantom right now? Yeah, so there's a new, there's, there's a game that launched on Phantom um, a couple of months ago. I think it was about August of, of this year or, or September of this year called S, um, S4 Kingdom. And it's a really, really popular like RPG-based, uh, turn-based strategy game, right? So you build up a character, you you skill it up um, in all sorts of like uh, different skills, whether it's like combat or you know fishing or crafting and that sort of thing, and 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 you basically like acquire items and and um you know you 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 um it, it's PVE, so it's player versus environment. And I know they've got a lot of ideas coming down the line, which is more like PVP orientated. And a lot more different like game mechanics coming in but that's a game that uh, when it launched got a lot of traction so it was one of the top it's one of the top 10 or or was one of the top 10 games overall in, in the blockchain space not just on phantom but on any chain right and it was more popular um at one point i think than axie infinity and cause on chain and, and a few other games uh games so that's a game that has gotten really really popular and there are a few other games that are uh are coming down the line as well like phantom lords and um, uh, um, and Phantom Adventure, which are like you know RPG based, and I think some card based games as well. Um, and on the DeFi side, you know, obviously people know that we've had that issue with multi chain going back a few months, and you know we're still trying to help resolve that. But even then, you know, we've had like Layer Zero and Axa come in and help inject you know millions of dollars of liquidity. We have you know people um, uh, running you know Dexes and and GMX, for example, like Money Money Finance, which is a fork of GMX. And we have other like um, uh, different like DeFi-based applications that still exist and are trading on the Phantom network. 
And what we're looking to do is really like improve the technology tremendously um, so these applications can run more efficiently on Phantom, as well as, you know, encourage um, uh, more and more developers on Phantom via different incentives. So, you know, we've got like hackathons that we're sponsoring. We've got, you know, direct grants that we're now giving. So we've given a direct grant to S4 Kingdom, for example, because I think they've demonstrated that they've been able to build a really popular application without spending too much money. Um, and we have like other like incentive ideas as well to really help builders build on Phantom and then, you know, hopefully stick on Phantom and run really efficiently on Phantom with newer technology. That's interesting. Can you tell us more about uh, hackathons and how can people get involved with that? And like, um, you know, what are the requirements and stuff like that? Yeah, so um, every quarter we plan to run a hackathon and the hackathon is really around like certain themes of applications that we want people to build on Phantom. Um, you know, the, the themes can be across like different types of DeFi applications or gaming applications or other type of applications. And basically, we let people like submit under that particular theme. And then we have a panel of judges, um, some from Phantom Foundation and others from, um, you know, different uh, players in the Phantom community and, and, and different VC funds. And then we, you know, we select winners, you know, top three winners per application and a few other categories as well. And, you know, they get, um, they get funding in order to help explore their idea on Phantom. Um, and we also can introduce some of these winners to different um, uh, VC funds that have shown an interest of in, uh, in investing in these projects as well. Um, so that's kind of like how the hackathon works. What we also want to do is we want to now encourage people in the new hackathons that are coming out to help uh, build in the new testnet and new technology that we've got coming out as well, because we really, we really want to spread the word about you know, the technology we have, because I think it's I think it's amazing. I think the the team has built an incredible technology, which is far more scalable than other networks out there. And we need to show that to the to the uh, community now. So you know, the hackathons are really about acquiring um, you know developers, getting to build on Phantom, and really the objective of the chain. I just to elaborate a bit more is I think a blockchain becomes sustainable when it has a lot of users on the network generating in aggregate a lot of transactions, but the cost of transaction is low, right? So it's kind of like the, the Visa or the Mastercard-based model where they charge a transaction fee um, you know, per transaction done, but then um, having that apply not just for payments, but for all sorts of different like you know, web-free-based applications that people want to use. And so for us, what we're aiming to do is you know, acquire developers via these initiatives like hackathons and also build out the technology to enable people to be able to generate significant transactions on the network without you know increasing cost per user, without you know you know uh, creating bottlenecks for the network, um, that sort of thing. So really for us, it's about like you know how do we achieve that sustainable revenue or transaction fee growth for the Phantom network? And how do you view the crypto VC situation right now? Um, are VCs still uh, you know active and 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 searching for investments, or they're still you know uh, being more uh, protective of of their funds at at uh, you know at the current market? So it looks like this year that they've been more like kind of like protective of their funds. Um, that being said, you know they've you know, VCs have made like a number of investments to do like different projects, but it's definitely like, as I like to call it, like kind of like bear market investing. In other words, you know, they're, they're, they're quite conservative. 
they don't want to take as much risk with you know projects they see as too risky. Um, you know, they're willing to invest money into projects that are really, really confident about, but not so much in projects that are not so like confident about. Um, you know, I think that changes when there's a quote unquote bull market. You know, I think you know people gain more of a risk appetite because they can see that you know the potential gains is higher. Um, and so, you know, I, I think you see this when when people look at the funding charts, the funding charts have gone down significantly compared to like the beginning of the year. Um, you know, we're going to see what happens, you know, towards the end of this year, next year. Um, but I think, you know, it, it's kind of, we're kind of like on the on the downtrend for VC investing, but I anticipate that it will pick up again. And what would be your advice for any developers out there that are, you know, currently, you know, trying to, to break in with their, with their, uh, you know, developments, um, just go to hackathons and, and, you know, uh, hope for the market to, to turn around or should they, uh, you know, like actively try to raise right now? So I think when they like do um, builders out there, the first big piece of advice I'd give to them is think about building an application that solves a problem that doesn't really exist at the moment. Right. You know, I, I wouldn't, for example, like, Want to be building like a new dex because there's so many dexes out there right unless you can somehow like solve a particular problem that the de- none of the existing dexes have solved but if you just fork a dex and you know want that to be popular it's not really likely to work because there's so many dexes out there right but if you build like a new type of like you know for example decentralized finance application you know incorporating something that exists in traditional finance that doesn't currently exist on you know a, a blockchain and and building that out I think that has the opportunity to be very successful in particular if if the market turns right because you know a lot of people might be attracted to this new idea and want to explore it and I think for example that's how GMX became successful you know some you know the GMX product that existed you know, you know the GMX product that it has you know it uh, didn't really exist before you know GMX came around or at least I'm not really aware of like you know products similar to GMX that existed and that managed to take off because people love you know the sorts of leverage trading on um, Uh, opportunities and it wasn't really available without before but now gmx made it available which is why people forked it um the, the other piece of advice i would give is you know feel free to reach out to myself you know the team at phantom you know at phantom fdn on twitter um or or, or, or email us um um on, on phantom as well and you know just say that you know I, i have an idea and you know we can give some feedback on it You know, we, we can help you out if you deploy on Phantom regards like marketing. And, you know, we have a big Twitter following of over half a million, you know, followers. Um, we can, you know, do in some cases some code review, some provide some, um, you know, um, uh, potential like legal advice as well um, off the cuff and provide like a bunch of like other support and also potential like direct investment or, you know, um, uh, other incentive programs as well that we have on Phantom. So I think if you're a builder, you know, try and create something that's unique. And take the initiative to reach out to you know different people out there different chains because what's the worst that happens if you reach out to someone right they just ignore you right or they say no okay big deal right you know talk to someone else and then you know you talk to someone else maybe that other person will be you know will really appreciate your idea and want to explore it and help you grow it so you just got to have a lot of initiative and, and think kind of like a bit unique yeah and you, you got to be um, accustomed to To rejection and uh, you know not let you stop the not let it stop you in, in, in this market right exactly um, yeah yeah another interesting question that, that that came to mind is 
like obviously we've seen a lot of uh, successful um you know web3 games right nft games but do you have any insights or or guesses why did that vertical why did games um you know be- became you know one of the most important uh factions uh, uh, you know of, of web3 which you know if you think about it um like what what's the venn di- diagram here between um you know people that are interested in uh economic um trading and 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 investing right in a decentralized way and 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 gamers right like how, how did that came about uh, in your eyes so i think you know i think a lot of gamers um like um you know being able to like own and create items right i think this is why like for example like mmo rpg games or massive uh, multiplayer online role-playing games are so popular right Because you have a character or you have a city or something that you can build up over time, right? You know, with a character, you can level him up or her up. You can acquire items and you can use that character to fight other people, you know, in this like alternative reality, right? And I think, you know, also coming from a bit of a gaming background, I think people love that idea about being able to create something that you can own and you can say that, you know, I'm the one that created this, right? Um But, and, and and that's where the opportunity is with web free technology right because in you know traditional gaming um when you create a character or you earn a skin or something like that um you know you don't really have control over right right it's really like the game developer that has control over it and, and over your character and so your ability to say like you know sell your character or sell items for real money or being able to you know transact with transact with other people is always done by a centralized third party You can you know censor you right or you know you, you can like just confiscate your item because they accuse you of violating their terms of service or whatever right and then you know so you don't really own your item in the end right it's really the game that owns your item whereas like if you build an application um that connects to web3 and that you know saves the nfts or the characters that you create on the blockchain then you can really prove that you are the one that owns this character and that someone else can't take that away from you um because it's not under the control of a third party And that you know it is something that will continue to exist into the future and it's something that you can freely trade with someone else p2p or in your own like like nft marketplace um and so i think people love that concept of like ownership um and and being able to transact with one another and we know that in the web 2 space um the amount of like money that's spent on digital items is you know is incredible right and you know it's kind of like growing exponential over time you know you think about the amount of money that people spend on in-game items on you know mobile based games or you know or, or or like World of Warcraft or you know or even online and, and and others and people have spent millions and millions if not billions of dollars and i think those like you know millions and millions of dollars that are spent you know um in centralized web 2 gaming is a big opportunity for web for for web 3 gaming as well so to me the use case kind of makes sense Um, you know depending on what sort of like game you're creating you know if you're just creating a game that doesn't really require someone to you know build up and grow a character or city or or some sort of entity then it doesn't really make sense you know to use web free technology because you're not really like saving like 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 nfts or you know unique points of data but if someone is you know able to build something over time that persists over time and that allows them to create items that are tradable um, between one another then that is a real use case i think of gaming on the blockchain got you so ownership permanence 
and the, the ability to trade and and um, you know your own creations. That's yeah, I, I'd say that's that's uh, that's spot on. Very interesting. Okay, so you've mentioned that um, builders could reach out to you. Uh, where would anyone in our audience that is interested in learning more about Phantom and, and following you, where should they go? Um, so um, where we release a lot of news, um, first and foremost, is on Twitter. So if you um, follow us at Phantom FDN, so that's at F-A-N-T-O-M-F-D-N, um, then you'll you'll see the latest news coming from Phantom. You can also follow myself at Michael F. Kong, so at M-I-C-H-A-E-L-F-K-O-N-G. Um, I'm also on Twitter and a little bit more active these days, actually. And you can also email us um, at Phantom as well. I mean, you can email me at mk at phantom.foundation and I can you know talk to you directly or, or connect you with um, the right um, uh, individual to speak with. Um, so that's how you can uh, reach out to us, really. And uh, sorry, and also go to our website, um, phantom.foundation. So f-a-n-t-o-m.foundation, and and there you will see you know a bit more about the team and the technology and some projects on Phantom, as well as at the bottom in the footer, you know, links to our Discord, our Telegram, um, other ways to contact us, etc. That's great. So I, I want to thank you again, uh, Michael, for taking the time and you know sharing so much about Phantom today with our audience. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Avi. Yeah, again, like appreciate the opportunity. And thank you for listening to the Bitcoin.com News Podcast. Follow us for more interviews with the most interesting leaders, founders, and investors in the fields of cryptocurrency, decentralized finance, NFTs, and the metaverse.